Actually, I want to start by talking about the, um, uh, just sort of the reality I think a lot of, of us face. Um, I have friends, uh, people that I love who aren't happy. I don't know if you have that same experience, but I think all of us do. Um, these are friends who will come to me when life is difficult, and they'll talk to me about stuff when life is falling apart. Um, and actually, normally, it's, uh, what happens is that just in the general course of conversations as we're talking, they'll talk about the things in their lives that aren't going well. Just in normal conversation, they start talking about the problems that they have, the struggles that they have, the issues that they have at work, at home, with marriage, with dating, with school, all these different sorts of things. Um, and as they tell me about their problems, I often ask them, like, so how are you handling this? What are you doing about it? Or, um, you know, just as I know them, I know. I've got one friend who medicates his problems with drugs because it just makes life easier. I've got another friend who um, can't handle life without being in a relationship. No matter how destructive that relationship might be, it just makes her feel better to feel loved by someone. Um, even when that relationship is not good. And it's especially hard when you feel like you know what they're supposed to do, right? And then you give them advice, and that's exactly where God's people are in the book of Haggai, okay? Um, That's the situation of Israel when Haggai was written, Um, The lives of the people in Israel are not going well. We've looked at it in the past. They aren't earning enough money from their work. They don't have enough food or clothing, and they never seem to be able to save any money no matter how hard they try. And Haggai is this prophet that comes not just with advice, but with God's perspective on their situation. And so let me read to you just Haggai's advice or Haggai's um, expression of what God thinks about their situation. We've seen this already before. This is from Haggai chapter 1. It says, I think you can read most of that. It says, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? What God is saying here through Haggai is God is saying the problem here is that you're neglecting me. Like that's the problem that you're dealing with in your life. You're neglecting me. The, the, this house in the wood that was just God's house. And what's happened here in the nation of Israel is that the people have taken the wood that was designed to build God's house and they've taken that wood and they are using it for luxury add-ons to their own houses. Okay, that's what the paneled houses are. It's these luxury add-ons. They're taking God for granted. And so God says, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your way. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. And so God says, come and build my house. God's telling them, look, your problem isn't your work. It's not your food, your clothes, or your money. It's not your relationships. Um, The problem is that you're looking for all those things to make you happy, and they can't. They won't. They can't make you happy without me. I'm the only one who can give you true satisfaction in life. And so God is saying, come back to me, build my house, which means put me first in your life and see what will happen. See what will happen. In fact, this is actually what Lent is all about. Lent is designed, this season is designed for us to re-up with God. It's basically what we're doing. We choose to give up something, and it's not even something bad. 
but we choose to give up something just to rehearse in our lives that God is more important to us than whatever else we want. That's what Lent is. And so Lent is now through Easter when we are experiencing the life of Jesus, right? We're denying ourselves so that we can devote ourselves even more to God. So I'm giving up sweets. And so, you know, what Mike with those donuts, you know, that's incredibly tempting for me. Thank you, Mike. Um, (laughs) But if I say it out loud, the temptation diminishes a little bit, doesn't it? So that's helpful for me. Um, So when we want what we've given up in that moment that we want it, we can say, Jesus, I want this. Truth be told, Jesus, I want this, but I want you even more. Jesus, you are more important to me than anything else in the world. So I'm going to go without this for a time. That's what Lent is. And so what we're looking at here, where God is saying, look, come back to me, re-up with me, devote yourself to me, put me first. This is God's advice. And the question for us is, what is Israel going to do? Because in the past, if you look at the past, you read some of the other prophets, what they do actually is they take Haggai and they tie him up and they throw him in a pit and they say, if you ever talk to us again, we're going to fill this pit up with water. Okay? That's typically the fate of the prophets of Israel. And so are they going to listen to Haggai from, you know, in Haggai's word that came from God? Let's see. Let's see. This is what verses 12 and 13 tell us. Here it is on the, on the screen. It's also in your bulletin. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, that's the governor, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obey the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. They did it! (laughs) They did it! Like, they obeyed God. Everyone listened and obeyed. I mean, have you ever had advice for someone and you shared this advice with them, and they actually took your advice and did it, and it worked out? I mean, that's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. And what we see in this response of the people, in these two verses, we see really three elements of a real relationship with God. Okay? So in the midst of these two verses, we're going to see what does it look like to have a real relationship with God. Okay? So if you want to take notes... Um, here's the first thing we're going to look at today. The real relationship we got. First, we're going to look at remnant, right? The word remnant, which means to us that God loves us before we obey, okay? This is a gospel truth that you've got to wrap your mind around. Um, from top to bottom, the, the, everyone obeyed, okay? Verse 12 says, Zerubbabel, who I told you was the governor. We learned that earlier in the chapter. Joshua is the high priest, and so you have the political and spiritual leadership of Israel is obeying, right? So from the very top, and then again, verse 12. And I love the fact that verse 12 calls all the people the remnant. See, it says, with all the remnant of the people, okay? You see that, right? I mean, I would circle the word remnant in verse 12 because it's a huge and important word. The, the word remnant, it refers to These are the people who survive after judgment. Okay? It's the people who survive after judgment. And if you 
are not just jumping into the story of the Bible at this point, but you know what's gone on up to this point. I know a lot of you don't, and that's okay. The whole nation of Israel before this had become corrupt. Okay, the whole nation had gone bad. They were oppressing the poor and the defenseless. They were abusing their own people. They were completely corrupting justice in the nation, and they had turned their backs on God. They turned their backs on God. And because of this, they were conquered by an enemy nation, and they were enslaved for 70 years. You think about that. It's hard to, I mean, you hear it, you're like, oh, okay, 70 years. No, 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 hold on. So that means if today some nation from another, some enemy nation, not that America is the chosen nation, we're not like Israel in that way, but just to get a sense of how long this was, if an enemy nation were to come and attack us and literally conquer us, subject us, work for them, conquer us, literally, and then take us captive into their nation and to make us work for them, if that happened today, then by the time we got back here, it would be 2086. So probably most of us would be dead. Maybe, maybe a few not. Most of us would even be dead. And so it would be our children and even our grandchildren that would be coming back. 70 years they were held captive and enslaved as a judgment for corrupting their world, for corrupting their nation. And all throughout that time, God made promises that he would restore them. All throughout that time, God promised that he hadn't forgotten about them. And God promised that through the judgment that they deserved, God would rescue them and he would bring them back to the land. And what he would do is he said, I will bring back to the land a remnant. That's what he called them, the people that were going to survive the judgment and come back to the land. The remnant would be restored to the land and they would receive the blessings of God's extravagant grace. Okay, and so this remnant would be blessed, not because they deserved the blessings of God, because actually they didn't, they deserved judgment. But the remnant would be blessed because God loves his people and he saves his people when they turn to him. Okay, they are the remnant. And so that's, who we're, that's, who, that's who's responding here. These are the remnant. These are the blessed people of God, and they're blessed. They're called the remnant before they obey. Right? They are the remnant. They are brought back in before they obey. And the same thing is true for us today. It's true. God calls us to obey. God tells us what to do. God is direction in our lives. And yet, the good news of the gospel is that we don't earn our salvation. We don't have to do obedience in order to receive God's blessings. God blesses us before we obey. God comes to us. The Bible says that, you know what, there are good people in the world, and when they're in trouble, if someone were to sacrifice for those good people, that makes sense to us. In fact, for righteous people who haven't done anything wrong, it would make sense for someone even to give their life for those good people. But here's the love of God. Here's the love of God. The love of God says that while we were still sinners, while we were ignoring God, while we didn't care about God, while we were neglecting God, Jesus came and died for us. And so before we obey, before we do anything, before we even think about God in our lives, Jesus has come. God has come first 
to love us and to sacrifice and to give his life for us. And so this is the gospel that God's promises persevere even in the face of our own disobedience. Here's Romans 11, verses 5 and 6. It says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But it is, if it's of grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So we serve a God of grace, which means you don't have to work for your salvation. You don't have to earn the blessings of God. You turn to him. God wants a relationship with us, and that relationship begins with us trusting in Jesus, period. If you turn the direction of your life to follow Jesus, you receive every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That is good news, that we are saved before we obey. So the remnant is the remnant before they obey. It's not guilt that, motivated, that motivates us to obey, but it's God's love. And this actually is what produces a real relationship. Okay? It's not servile fear. It's not rote mechanical servitude. But what God wants from us is a relationship that's based on love and grace. And so he moves first. He comes to us first so that we would understand that and experience that. Okay, so that's what the remnant means. Now, second, the second piece of a real relationship with God in this passage is obedience. And obedience is us prioritizing God. Okay, we saw this uh, before, kind of in the middle of verse 12. It says, They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. So before we talk about their obedience, I do want you to see that. Right? The word of God is the word of Haggai. You see that in verse 12? They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. So the Bible is God's word. I want you to see that here. The words of Haggai the prophet are the words of God. So the Bible is the thoughts and the feelings of God. The Bible is God's mind and heart given to his people so that we would know what God thinks. And the people heard the Bible and treated it as though it were from God. And they didn't just hear, but they heard and they obeyed. They heard and they obeyed. They did what God said. We're going to look more specifically about at what their obedience looks like in the weeks to come. Um, and I know, though, so today, I, just want to, I kind of want to zero in just on this concept of obedience, okay? Because for some of us, obedience is a little bit of a bad word. The idea that we have to obey anyone seems to sort of subjugate us into the role of like a, an employee or a servant, um, and people don't like that. Um, for a lot of people, the, the idea of obeying, having to obey, even if it's having to obey God, uh, there's a loss of freedom. There's a loss of being able to think for yourself. Um, and what I've seen with so many people in my own life is that I've, I think that what drives people is they, they think, can I trust God enough to actually commit to obeying him in everything? I think that's sort of the crux of it. Like, I don't know if I know enough about what God would say to me in order for me to trust him enough to obey him. And I would say that I think you can trust God enough I think that you can trust God and obey him if 
the God that you are obeying proves himself to be trustworthy. I think that you can, if the God that you're obeying has himself come to earth and identified with your own struggles, your own sins, and your own temptations. I think you can, if the God you're obeying loves you and has proven that he will do anything for you, including experience torture and death, humiliation and shame. Not for anything that he did, but because he was standing in your place. When we're talking about a God like that, I think you can trust him enough to obey him because he's proven, he's proven that he loves you and that he cares for you. He's proven actually that his way of living leads to forever. Jesus came and lived a life that is so different from the life that we would live. Because even if we don't feel like at the core of who we are, we're selfish, um, we still tend to live our lives geared around, oriented around serving ourselves. But Jesus came and gave his life in service for others. And the resurrection of Jesus means that God has put his stamp of approval on Jesus' life and actually said it's wrong for him to be dead and so brings him through death and out the other side of death. Jesus is living forever. He's living forever, which means if we're on the path that he is on following after him, we too will live forever. That's the kind of life that will last forever. And so... What does obedience look like today in your life? What does it look like for you to obey Jesus? Let's think about this, both the positive and the negative. First, the positive. Are there areas right now where you are obeying God because you love him? Like, are there things that you're doing in your life that you wouldn't do if you didn't love God? Think about that. Think about that. If there are, here's what that means. That means that you are devoting your life or a portion of your life. You're devoting your life to doing what God wants. The good news of this is that God sees that. God sees your obedience and he is pleased with you. God knows every motivation I mean, even when, like, I was talking to somebody this week who set out to do something nice for someone, and then the circumstances changed, and they couldn't actually do what they wanted to do for this person, okay? And they were telling me about it, and I said, well, gosh, you know what? Here's the good news. God knew what you were trying to do. And you don't have to, like, explain it to him, because, like, sometimes you still want the person, and sometimes you just want the credit, and you, so you talk about it, so you can get the credit for it. But sometimes you just want the person that you were going to do this nice thing for to, to know that you're, hey, you know what? Uh, gosh, this doesn't fit anymore, but I was going to do this for you. Like I was going to make you breakfast, but you already ate. That kind of thing, right? And you want to let them know just not because necessarily you want the credit, but because you want them to know they're loved, right? The good news is that every time you are motivated out of a desire to love God and to obey him, 
God sees that and he's pleased. In a book that is, in lots of other ways, very confusing, in the book of Job at the very beginning, there's this amazing scene that is very mysterious between God and Satan. God and Satan are up in heaven, and God's like, so Satan, what are you up to? Which is weird. Um, And Satan goes, well, I'm roaming around the earth here and there, you know, which is also weird. (laughs) And God says, hey, have you seen my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth. He serves me with all of his heart. The story goes on, but for me, I stop there because I think, wow. Like there is God bragging on Job. But we have a God who sees. That's what he's called. There are people who have been completely alone and in the darkness where nobody understands them, and God has seen them, and so they call him the God who sees. And I just want you to know that in every area of your life where you are obeying God, where you are doing what he says just because he says it and you love him, that God sees that. And there may be sessions where God is saying, hey, angels, come check out Mark. Hey, angels, come check out Michael. Come see what he's doing. Did in our obedience. Do you see what she's doing? Where God is truly delighted in our obedience. And you just need to know that. You need to know that your Father in heaven sees it every time you do it, and he's pleased. All right, so now on the negative side, are there any areas of your life where you aren't obeying God? Are there areas of your life? Think about that, right? God says, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Are there areas of your life where you are not wanting to do what God wants? I mean, from this, from what we've seen already, God would say, do you think that life's going to work out well for you? Do you think this is going to work out great when you're living this part of your life apart from me? There's a bit of like a pleading with Haggai, what we've seen earlier. Consider your ways. Like, why are you doing this? Like, don't you see how life doesn't work out when you disobey? And so for us, for you today, what could you do this week that would turn this area of your life back to God? I mean, the areas where you're not obeying him, what would it look like this week to take a step of obedience toward God? I think this passage teaches us that obedience is the fitting response of someone who wants to honor God. Obedience really is a way to show God how much you care about him. Obedience says, God, I care so much about you that I will reshape my life around what you want. That's what obedience is. And the impact of this, when we do this, when you turn from your disobedience and begin to obey God, when you take that first step and then the second step, um, the impact of this is that our obedience becomes communion with God. There's something really special about this. 
Because God is not calling us to empty robotic obedience. God is calling us to a relationship. And when we think about that, when we want to relate to God and we want to obey him, then each act of obedience becomes an opportunity for you to show God how much you love him. And that totally reframes the way I think about obedience. And so obedience is us prioritizing God. The third thing in this passage is, I think, more complicated. And it's fear. It's fear. Um, And what we're going to see is that fear is a surprising expression of family love. You're like, huh? How's that work? Well, let's see it in the passage first. This is why we're talking about it. So they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. So there are actually multiple kinds of fear in the Bible. Okay? Um, we hear the word fear. And usually in our culture, in our day and age, we think servile fear. We think cowering before an unhappy dictator. Right? Or an unhappy tyrant. Um, that is not what verse 12 is describing. Okay, and I'm going to prove it to you. Okay, we're going to look at a different verse in the Bible. It's Exodus 20, verse 20. It says this Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. How many times the word fear used in this verse? Twice, right? So, do not fear so that you can fear God. That's what Moses is saying, right? Do not fear. God's come to test you so that you would fear him. Okay, so we've got two different kinds of fear here. You see that, right? Okay, this is helpful. This is a new verse for me. Like I've wrestled with, man, what is the fear of God? I mean, the, the phrase, the fear of the Lord is all over the Bible. And I've struggled to try to define that. I've struggled because... I think, wait a minute, how does being afraid of God, how does like cowering in fear from God like fit in with the fact that he loves us and he cares for us and he died for us in Jesus, right? So, and then I found this verse and I said, oh man, here it is in one verse. You got two different uses of the word fear. This is fantastic. So as I studied this, I found Martin Luther, one of the reformers from the 1500s. He said something back then that's worth saying 500 years later. Martin Luther, he made a distinction between two different kinds of fear. He made a distinction between servile fear and what he called filial fear, F-I-L-I-L, or F-I-L-I-A-L. And he said servile fear is terror from a tyrant who's not happy. But filial fear comes from the Latin idea of the word family. And this is what he said about it. He said, this is the honor that a child has for his father. Or mother. This, this filial fear is a child who has tremendous respect and love for his father or mother, a child who dearly wants to please them. That child has a fear or an anxiety of offending the one he loves, not because he's afraid of torture or even punishment, but rather because he's afraid of displeasing the one 
who is in that child's world the source of security and love. Period, close quote, drop the mic, let's go, right? I mean, that's what it means to fear the Lord. There's also a fear that's called reverential fear. It's called that way in the Bible. And this shows itself in adoration, when you are moved to reverence and to be in awe of God. And so this phrase, the fear of God, it involves the sort of these different converging properties. Okay, these, these different layers sort of go together and they mix together and they all serve to draw people toward faith. Okay, toward faith. There is a healthy bit of servile fear when you know that God is a judge who will judge the sin of the world. Okay? There is a healthy fear that you don't want to be caught up in the judgment of God. You don't want to be there when God's judgment comes against your sin. Because if you don't deal with your sin, God is going to deal with you. And that judgment ultimately ends up in hell, separated from God forever. And so there is some healthy fear like that. But that's not the sum total of it. It's actually not the overarching theme of the Bible. Right? Because what we've seen in Jesus is that God has come and he has taken that judgment on himself. When God says, I forgive you, what that means, he says, I'm not going to make you pay for what you did. Justice demands a punishment. I'm not going to make you suffer that punishment. Instead, I will take your punishment. You won't have to pay the price because I have paid the price. That's what he's done in Jesus. And that creates a sense of amazement. I can't believe that God would do that for me. I can't believe that God would come and he would live what I was supposed to live and he would die the death I was supposed to die. That Jesus would do this for us so that God could say, I forgive you because your sin has been paid for. That warms, that captures our hearts. That is the most incredible sacrificial love in the history of humanity. And that is a love that, that in, elicits from us like a filial respect and honor of God. It makes us think, God, I never ever want to do anything that would make your suffering anymore. And the Bible shows us this. Here's another verse in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. We see this idea of fear and love and obedience all come together. It says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? And then look at the rest of this verse, how it explains what the fear of God is. It says, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And so fearing God is this family love. It's this honor, this respect that says, God, what you want is more important than anything else. God, I'm going to obey you because I love you and I don't want to disappoint you. And so this fear of God doesn't mean that God is a tyrant, wary of his power, but he's a father whose providence surrounds people and provides for their needs. So this is what it means to fear. And can you see now then how the phrase, the fear of God, draws us deeper in 
to a relationship with God. God is not trying to be this tyrant who's never satisfied. I know a lot of us have parents that are never satisfied. And no matter what you do, they always criticize. They're never happy. They always beat you up. And you always feel like you come out of conversations and you're like, well, and you just sort of, you sort of live with that. And you think that's normal. And so when you see a phrase like fear of God, you think, well, same thing. God's not happy with me either. That is not what the Bible teaches. God loves you. He is for you. And this idea of fear is designed to draw you in so that you would respect him and you would honor him because God knows that's actually the path that leads to your greatest happiness. And so this verse tells us that when we live in a relationship with God like this, right, when we live as remnant people who embrace the gospel before we obey, we know that God loves us first. Um, when we obey God by prioritizing him, when we have a healthy and honoring respect and awe of God, here's God's response. Oh, that's a book if you want to read about, the, about fearing God. Who put that in there? I did. Um, <laughs> Jerry Bridges has written an amazing book called The Joy of Fearing God. Um, highly recommended on the subject. There you go. Okay, so here's God's response. God's response is verse 13. I woke everybody up, didn't I? All right, there you go. I should do that more often. Verse 13, then Haggai is, I am with you. I am with you. Verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And this is God's message. This is God's message. It's what it means to have a relationship with God. It starts with God. We respond. And then God says, I am with you. You can be sure. No matter where you go, I am with you. No matter what you've done, I am with you. No matter how well you do, I am with you. He's with us. He is for us. Friends of mine, um, whose lives are in different measures a mess. They talk about how relationships make them happy, how drugs can make them happy. And with understanding and compassion, like I connect with them, I tell them I understand how that works, I understand what it's like to try to disconnect or to feel like you can disconnect. I know what it's like to, to feel like you've got someone in your life who's on your side. So identify with whatever medication they're chasing after to make them happy. And then I tell them without arrogance at all, um, but in utter amazement of the God that has reached out and found me, I tell them that what drugs have done for you, God has done for me. Uh, what this relationship has done for you, God has done for me in ways that have been so much greater. And the difference is that with God, I don't actually have to disconnect from the reality of my life. I can be fully present. I can be fully aware of everything that's truly in front of me, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And because God is with me, 
I have strength. Because God is with me, I have a perspective. There is nothing compared to knowing that the creator of the universe is on my side. To know that that creator loves me and has given himself for me. And I share that. And as I share this advice that's an invitation to a relationship, I've had all kinds of different responses to this. I have friends who just aren't ready. You know, I can see it in their eyes, but they're just not ready. They're not ready to devote themselves to God. Um, I've got friends who, frankly, just don't want God or his advice. Um, I also have friends who have a bunch of friends who actually love the advice without the God part in it. You know, and they really appreciate the perspective that I can bring and the wisdom that comes from God, and they want to take that without God. And sometimes their lives get better, sometimes their lives don't get better. And I'm like, well, it's because you're kind of like disconnected from the source, you know, there's this, there's this thing. But then, but then I also have friends who have listened, and they have pressed into a relationship with God. They have begun to obey him. I have friends who've come to God or come back to God, and now they experience this relationship. They're part of the remnant, and their lives have changed because their relationship with God has changed. And so even when their circumstances haven't changed, they have changed because now they know this promise that God is with them. It changes everything. I just want to share one example um, this is someone from our youth group who's come to embrace this notion and they're seeing God show up in their lives. Talking about a strained relationship, um, he said, well, they'll let me back into their life when and if they're ready. And if not, there's a reason. But I still hope that our friendship can return to that level. And then listen to what he said. It's honestly very refreshing knowing the Lord is always looking out for all of us, even if it's not exactly the way we want. I want immediate gratification, but I'll take what God gives me because he's enough. Friends, this is the God that we serve. This is the power of God at work in a life. This is what he offers to all of us. And I want to encourage you, Today to decide that this week you're going to take steps in the direction of obedience. That in the places where you are obeying, realize God's approval and his delight is upon you. And in the areas where you aren't, take a step in his direction. Take a step of obedience and see what happens. Let's pray together.